Well, everyone, it's Friday, and everybody knows Friday. It's time to go inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sabalero, and I just want to say, if you were following the big news on Tuesday, Howard Stern did sign for another five years with Sirius XM Radio, and I am here to tell you that me and my co-host, Kelly Grayson, have also just copied that, and we've signed for another five years with EMS1. So, Kelly, congratulations on that. Well, yeah, it's, it's well-deserved, you know, I'm not, one day, hopefully Howard will have the popularity uh, and the, the readership we have. So I was, re- I was reading that story when it <laughs> came out, and on SiriusXM, he has almost 50 million subscribers. Yeah, and half of them are probably people that don't like Howard Stern. Uh, they just want to, they just enjoy being incensed by everything that he says. Um, always liked Howard. Uh, uh, you know, the guy's a, a, a media legend. So, yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, I I was in New York City when he came in the, the early '80s, and he warped a young boy's mind. But I couldn't stop listening. I was addicted, but I've been a fan ever since then. But anyway, let's go ahead and get past that. We know Christmas is coming up, and we're not going <laughs> to count the shopping days. But Kelly. Uh, we're going to kind of pick up on the conversation that we had a little bit last week. We had some really great yeah. uh, comments about it, and I think we have a new little squeeze to add, but I'm going to let you set it up and bring in our guest. Yeah, we have a uh, we have a special guest this week. We welcome to the show uh, our special guest this week, Nick Newdell with the American Paramedic Association, and he's going to be talking to us about our new position paper on COVID-19 vaccine considerations for EMS personnel and EMS response organizations. Nick, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your role with the American Paramedic Association? Sure, be happy to. I am currently the president of the board of the American Paramedic Association. And uh, so I work with the other board members and our executive director to, um, really we're still in the, the building the foundation Mm -hmm. building steps for the APA and soon we'll have some really exciting announcements to make about the APA, hopefully within the next month or so. But for now we've been building the, a new website and membership platform and programs so that we'll be able to uh, take care of the needs of paramedics around the country by advocating for them. And, and while we're doing that, we're working hard on advocacy. And uh, one of the, the new positions we have out in conjunction with the National EMS Management Association is this COVID-19 vaccine considerations guidelines. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. We were able to partner APA with NEMSMA. Um, with participation from both associations to put together this paper. Really, um, we were trying to use a crystal ball and think ahead about what what the needs of paramedics would be related to the topic of Mm -hmm. the COVID vaccines. There's a lot of news about it, about the vaccine. There's a lot of controversy. There's a a lot of discussion that's starting to happen now that the that we have two vaccines that are being evaluated for emergency use authorization. So we wanted to make sure that paramedics were aware of the kind of the safety issues or lack of safety issues as the case is here and Mm -hmm. how, how the uh, clinical trials have progressed for these vaccines to make sure that they are safe for us. And um, one of the, 
other kind of key points I think that's important for us to to consider the role that paramedics have. So we we are the only people, really the only people out there that go into people's homes, into people's workplaces, into the nursing homes and the rehab centers and everywhere where people are. So we're directly exposed to whatever they have. Or in this case, if they have COVID, we're directly exposed. Our bodies, our clothing, our shoes, our hair, our breath, we're completely exposed to it. And then we go on and go on another call and um, either share what they, you know, we, we either share what we brought with us mm-hmm. or we're now exposed to it again. And we do this over and over and over. And then if you add on top of that, when you're in the back of an ambulance, you're inches away from somebody that um, if they have an infectious disease like COVID, it's going to get on you. It's all over you. It's on your equipment. So we're not in a negative pressure isolation room like they have in the hospitals. We are just swimming in this infectious diseaseness in in ways that other responders and healthcare workers are not. So it makes our situation unique um, because of our exposure. And it's one of the reasons why paramedics were included in the uh, phase 1A part of the vaccine planning process uh, that came from the AICP recommendations uh, for the federal government. And they put us in the highest category because of that, where other responders were put into um, a, a lower category, essentially, because their risks were not as great as ours. So, Nick, when you think about the position paper, I mean, you know, it was really cool that you had some collaboration with uh, National EMS Management Association on this. I mean, so how how did how did we get in the middle of this and writing this position paper? I mean, was it that we, uh, the American Paramedic Association, went to NEMSMA? Uh, were you looking for that collaboration? Did they come to? I mean, because when we start to think about this for our providers, right? I mean, we really have to be able to be in those first people who are getting this, you know, getting this vaccine along with our other healthcare peers. It, it would seem that every organization should be in the forefront now of ensuring that EMS providers are going to get this uh, vaccine. So how, how did this come about, really? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. The APA and NENSMA have, uh, have discussions occasionally about topics of interest for uh, projects or opportunities where we can collaborate on things. And this seemed like a natural topic for that because we saw a need to communicate information to paramedic providers as well as to the management and leadership of paramedics so that they could be essentially on the same page when it comes to the vaccine information and process. And we realized that we could write one thing for management and then write one thing for paramedics, but then they both would need to read the other one in order to have a complete picture. So we just combined efforts and put it together all in one paper. And then over the last week or so, we've been hearing uh, various areas um, and states have been conducting surveys of EMS providers about their intention to, uh, to become vaccinated. 
and we're hearing uh, kind of some disturbing information that's coming from these surveys. Um, depending on who you talk to, I am, I've heard anywhere from 30 to 50% of providers are going to become vaccinated. So that means between 50 and 70% of providers will not be vaccinated. And at least in the initial uh, rollout of the vaccine after it's approved, um, some, of, some of the concerns that I've heard from the people that are saying, no, I'm going to wait, are that they feel like they're maybe being treated like a guinea pig because we're in mm -hmm. the first vaccination group. And that's actually a, a big misconception that we want to address. And one of the reasons for this paper is to address that very point. Um, the, the two drugs that are being evaluated right now are in phase three of their clinical trials. They've been um, given to tens of thousands of people already. One of them, I think it's the uh, Pfizer drug was given to almost 40,000 people in their trial and the Moderna one was given to somewhere around twelve or 15,000 people if I remember correctly. So it's already been given to thousands of people and it's got solid data behind it showing how safe it is. It's They both have about a 95% efficacy so they're both very effective at preventing people from getting sick from COVID and that's super, super important for us. And so for our providers to um, be concerned about being a guinea pig, I, I think we just need to hit that head on with that's not actually the case. It's because they, they are so effective and they are so safe that we need to get the riskiest people uh, vaccinated first so that they can um, so that we don't become infectors of other people. Yeah, uh, I, I, a lot of the pushback or the skepticism among EMS professionals is that we're we're still operating at somewhat of an information vacuum. Um, we know uh, we're, we're dealing with the the effects of the virus uh, in our patients and our colleagues every day. But as far as planning and and the pandemic response uh, on a, a larger scale. We're kind of waiting for information to trickle down to us, and, and there really hasn't been any nuts and bolts guidance on, on, on how we'll get this vaccine, how we may be potentially uh, people administering this vaccine to others. Um, and, and I think it's a good thing that we that uh, the APA and NIMSMA came out with uh, with this position paper, uh, giving us some some guidelines on how this should roll out and, and what we should be looking for. Uh you know, it's a shame that, that the the whole pandemic response and, and vaccinations and whatnot have been so politicized. Uh, but I would hope that that with some guidance and with some 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 solid statistics uh, that we quote in the paper, uh, the help will people here and and maybe bring that percentage of people who are comfortable with the vaccine uh, up from thirty to fifty percent to. to Hopefully a majority of us uh, will be more comfortable taking the vaccine. You know, as you pointed out, they're not guinea pigs. They've already had close to 60,000 guinea pigs already, and it's been proven safe on them. Uh, and the vaccines have met uh, all the FDA milestones and, and requirements for, for approval. It's just, uh, just formalizing things now.
Yeah, that's that's right, Kelly. And the the clinical trial process. A lot of people were also concerned that it was just like maybe rammed through too quickly, but that's a that's also a misunderstanding of the vaccine clinical trial process. The the process that's been followed is the normal process, and it's how the flu vaccine gets evaluated. Other vaccines get evaluated in this in the same manner, and um, the the emergency use authorization is just a kind of a, a sped up final approval process. In mm-hmm. essence, it it cuts through a bunch of red tape that lets things happen more quickly because the manufacturers have to uh, they have to manufacture hundreds of millions of doses. Well, if there's seven billion people on the planet, they need to manufacture seven billion doses. That's going to take a long time, and so we're already. Um, talking about it taking a couple months just for healthcare workers to be to be vaccinated. So this is a ramp up process that could be sped up through that EUA process, and uh, it in no way cuts short the clinical trials or the the post vaccine safety monitoring that they do, or or even the uh, reimbursement program. And I, I was reading the submission from Pfizer to the um, uh, to the FDA, and it it stated in there that out of the forty thousand or so uh, people that they vaccinated with theirs, there were only four untoward outcomes, and all four actually were cases of Bell's palsy. But the mm. um, the incident rate was less than the population incident rate. So out of 40,000 people, more than four people would have Bell's palsy. And so it's not even a statistically significant number, but they still reported it because they have to. So, so these are very, very safe um, drugs. It's already been proven just like the flu vaccine is evaluated every year. It's just, we don't normally hear about it in the U S because it's, darts in other parts of the world and works its way around before it comes to the U.S. So um, this one's just front and center. You know, so when we think about this, I mean, this is such an important issue, Nick, right? I mean, you know, we're dealing with COVID. We're dealing with patients that have COVID. You know, we're worried about the stress in or catching the virus, bringing it home, and, you know, just all this other stress now we're having to deal with. And, and, you know, you kind of talk about that we're trying to, you know, you're trying to make the case to say, take the vaccine, you know, you know that it's going to, you know, we we know that it's going to be okay, you know, you're not not guinea pigs. Everything that we've kind of talked about today, there are some agencies, there are some states that are, are looking to maybe mandate this as for their healthcare workers. I mean, there are some places that mandate the flu shot. I mean, we talked about this last week, Kelly. So when we think about this from a COVID uh, vaccine, um, should this, should this be in your opinion, should it be mandated for EMS providers? <laughs> that's a, that's a heavy question. Um, you know, I guess maybe the a caveat for me is formerly in in a previous role, I sat on a state committee in the health department where during the first SARS, <laughs> we were discussing whether uh, how to distribute the vaccines fairly and equally and whether they would become mandatory. And 
um, really that, that, that whole approach at the state level. And there's a lot of different considerations that, that go into that. And in order to, if you, if you remember kind of earlier this year, there was a lot of talk about herd immunity and probably requires a lot of legal counsel and advice and the rules and laws in each state are different. So even companies that cross state lines might have to have different policies depending on each state. You know, fundamentally, um, mandated vaccines uh, are already commonplace in healthcare. You really can't go to work in a care environment if you don't have proof of, of your childhood vaccinations and usually hepatitis B and, and uh, negative tuberculosis tests and, and so on and so forth. Um, there are waivers available for hepatitis B uh, and 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 even the the flu vaccine. Uh, however, uh, those are different animals entirely, um, infectiousness-wise, than COVID-19. So um, you don't get hepatitis B from casual contact. Uh, yet with, with COVID-19, uh, you very well very well can. Uh, and you were mentioning earlier the the proximity we have to COVID-19 patients and and the duration of exposure. And we know now that the duration of exposure plays a role in in how likely you are to become infected. Uh, so uh, I see. Uh, maybe some some agencies going to mandate this. Uh, that probably that that uh, um, rankles my libertarian soul. Uh, but then again, um, I, I think from a public health standpoint, there's it's it's certainly a uh, a question worth asking and and careful consideration there. Yeah, I'm with you, Kelly. Um, I. I'm not one in favor of mandating a lot of things and uh, in order to, mm -hmm. to make, you know, to get to a mandate kind of level, it kind of makes sense when it comes to this vaccine with a 95% efficacy yeah. and, and very few side effects. The side effects are minor like the flu shot. So I really, I really think of this vaccine mm -hmm. as being kind of equivalent to a flu shot and, if we can mandate flu shots, then it seems to make sense that this could be mandated also. So, Nick, yeah. let's go ahead and get to the, the you know, to the meat of, of what happens next. So, I mean, the American Paramedic Association has taken the stance to say, you know, this is our position. You know, this is where we're going to, uh, this is where we're going to be when it comes to this topic. I mean, so what happens next? I mean, what are we hoping that comes from this? you know, from this position paper? Well, I would, I guess, I don't see this necessarily as a strong position paper. Like, we've come out with positions on other topics where we've taken a stand as much as this is more information and informational to be educational. And instead of, so advocacy can happen outwardly, like with state regulators or county commissioners or, you know, your U.S. senator. Or it can happen internally within your profession advocating for things that uh, you think are important. And I, I put this more in that category of trying to help paramedics around the country to appreciate the importance of the vaccine and that it's safe and that it's okay. 
and like you had mentioned earlier, to, to really make them feel more comfortable that it's it's whatever they might hear on the radio or on TV or on a website that might sound really scary about this. It's it's not scary, and um, the public health officials have made a number of boo-boos over the last year, right? Not everybody agrees with everything that's been done. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of controversy (laughs) about wearing masks and whether you can mandate masks and all that kind of stuff too. But in this case, this really is like a different kind of science. This is not the same thing. This is a whole different group of people um, external to the government that were funded by the government, but it wasn't the government that did this work and they've done the research and been able to show that it's safe. So I know it's really hard to kind of split hairs like that, but I would like for my peers, the paramedics around the country to be vaccinated so that we can be healthy so that we don't lose any more paramedics to um, either death or just being sick for a very long time with COVID and so that their families don't get sick and um, in some cases die because of COVID. Uh, I think it's horrible when we hear about, we have line of duty deaths, but then we have family line of duty deaths, right? When that, when that happens, Mm -hmm. I think that's horrible. There's, it's very difficult to track that back to work, but it's, when it's a community, you know, when it's community spread, it's hard to track that back to our work. But we're right there in the in the thick of it. So I consider those workplace injuries myself. And um, so going forward from now, I do expect we're probably going to hear about more vaccines. I know AstraZeneca is working on one that was just approved in the UK. Um it has a 90% efficacy rate, and it also doesn't require the negative 94-degree temperature storage like the uh, Pfizer one does. So there's pluses and minuses to each one, but most of that's in the logistics and how you how you handle the vaccine. So um, we're going to hear about more vaccines. The vaccine plans are going to be updated for each state, I think, a lot of the plans from the state level are dependent on what vaccines they're going to have because like the storage temperature issue, the state has to make big plans about how they're going to acquire and store millions of doses of this medication at those temperatures. So that takes a lot of planning in of itself. So the, the strategies and the uh, administration plans are going to be changing as new information comes to light. And so we do plan on updating this document. Uh, You'll notice that we've actually given a a version number and a date at the bottom, at the bottom of the page. Mm -hmm. So that way, when new things come out, we'll be able to update it and post the updated version of it and provide new information whenever it's available. Yeah. And, and, you know, even even if it was not intended, per se, a, a position paper, uh, you know, there's there's so much fear and superstition and, and uh, myth and mythology around uh, this involving this entire pandemic. And the antidote to that is is information and data. And and it provides uh, at least good foundational 
uh, set of information for public health officials and, and EMS providers uh, going forward uh, with with taking and administering this vaccine. You know, we've got great, uh, we've got pretty clear guidance from the CDC that, that EMS workers should be in phase 1A. Um, but state health organizations are not bound by CDC, uh, and a number of them uh, seem to be taking a risk uh, uh, seriously. Uh, we're the only profession that routinely comes into contact with every single one of the other high-risk uh, high risk patient groups uh, on a daily basis. So uh, I think that it gives uh, paramedics and, and EMS agencies some ammunition, if you will, when they when they go to advocate for for being placed at a higher priority when this when the vaccines become available. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. At, you know, in the state where I'm at, Colorado, uh, put paramedics as one B, and uh, ah. so I. I'm very concerned about that and, and contacted some of our friends at this, uh, you know, at the Capitol to discuss it because, because of all the things we've already mentioned. And I know our governor is getting ready to update the, the prioritization and the vaccine plan. So I'm awaiting with bated breath to see if paramedics have been moved back up to one A where they should be. And, um, we'll, we'll see what happens there, but, but you're exactly right. It's, we, we have to look out for ourselves and that's, that's why we started the American Paramedic Association was to provide a, a platform for being able to advocate for paramedics and having paramedic interests at heart. It's the only thing that, that motivates us is making sure that, that the needs of paramedics are being addressed and in ways that uh, nobody else has done before and so this is a this is an example of that kind of effort and hopefully those those conversations and the guidance sheet uh, APA has provided on this will bear fruit in the in the days to come um, but uh, Nick before we go why don't you tell us a little bit more about the the uh, you mentioned the mission of the APA. Um, can you give us a teaser on some of the things that are uh, that we can look forward to coming from the APA in the in the coming days and weeks? Sure. I I kind of hinted at it earlier, but mm -hmm. I'll just kind of come back around to our membership platform. When we launched, we're coming up on our second anniversary, and um, it's been been a very busy two years because we spent the last year dealing with COVID and it's, it's affected mm -hmm. our board members and executive director. Like it's, it's affected us personally as well as in our work. And yeah, um, it's, it's kind of made things challenging for everybody everywhere, but also in getting a new association started, it's been challenging that way too. So we've been working hard to get this membership platform ready to go and we are hope, hopefully going to be able to launch it on january 1st so you'll notice at that point we will have a new website a new look and a way for people to join the american paramedic association we'll be able to collect dues and then people will be able to expect a lot more from us because we'll be 
uh, able to form committees where we can get work done. Um, if it just relies on the few of us that are board members to get everything done, then we'll never get anything done. So we really are going to be <laughs> right, Kelly. <laughs> we're we're yeah. going to be. <laughs> we will be recruiting um, members from all over the country to join us and to help us with this important work and help us set the, the mission and the tone for what the APA does going forward. We just kind of, as, a, as an initial board here, we look at what we've done as just planting the seeds and getting things started. And we are looking forward to having, well, you know, of course I'd say hundreds of thousands of members um, join us to, um, because many, many hands make light work. And we need we need the help. Yeah. But also, each state has its own issues that need to be dealt with. So we plan to have state chapters, um, allowing allowing people with interest in any particular state to focus on the issues related to that state. And then other areas where it's like this COVID nineteen issue, which is national, and we'll be able to work on that. Uh, just as the, the broader group. So we'll have state chapters. We will have um, multiple types of members and some unique ways of making it easy for people to become members of the APA. That that will hopefully roll out, like I said, on the first first of the year. Um, it's, it's almost done getting set up right now. Well, that's great news, and and uh, I can't wait to get my membership card and and a certificate suitable for framing for my I love me wall. <laughs> um, but hey, that's what that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. We've had Nick on with the American Paramedics Association, uh, telling us education as far as COVID nineteen. What's your state doing? Um, are they are they giving you priority? Do you need some help? in advocating for EMS at the state level. We're given the vaccine party that we uh, we are. We'd like to hear your thoughts at the show at emswarm.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero and our special guest this week, Nick Newdell with the American Paramedic Association, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.